0: Well, got a few of your friends in today then, Simon, I see. <laughs> now, they just end with two, just but two years since Simon and I last uh, took tea or coffee together on this very stage. Uh, but typically, characteristically, since those, that time, it's been two years of constant achievement. <laughs> he went off to do the West End run of Death Trap after that. He then filmed The Deep Blue Sea opposite Rachel Weisz and Tom Hiddleston. With Mr. Hiddleston again in the recent Shakespeare films, you may have seen, and St. Simon gave his full stuff in the two parts of Henry the He's back here at the N- S. Well, Yes, well clapped there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> He's back here giving his time on of Athens and a production which is uncannily prescient about the way we live now, how Shakespeare managed it, goodness only knows. But I also think that Simon, you've, put, you've also fitted in uh, your series on the symphony amongst all this other activity. And for all I know, you probably picked up a couple of Olympic golds as well. <laughs> <rather>. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you know, did you know much about Tymon of Athens before they asked you to play him? No. Um, I was saying just before we
1: came on that, you know, talking about it being uh, prescient or apposite or whatever. But of course, oddly, because of the way theatre's planned, uh, I think Nick must have talked about it to me, must have been two years ago, I mean, he might correct me on that, but uh, certainly it was quite a long time ago. and I and, uh, we were just having lunch, and uh, um, actually, to be honest, what he said is uh, Do you want to do Summer Night's Dream? And uh, <laughs> I, I, I love this masterpiece. Mm. But he could obviously see from my face, I didn't go, Wow, yes. <laughs> uh, good, time to give my bottom. And I. <laughs> it's one of those parts when you think, actually. 20 years ago I'd like to have done bottom and I'd like to do it in 20 years time if I'm still alive. You know, the, the, it's, it was one of those ones. Anyway, obviously he saw my reaction and then and our lunch finished and then he went away and then um, uh, left me a message and said, what about, have you ever read Time of Athens? And we had this long, long conversation on the phone where I talked to him about Time of Athens as if he'd offered me *Time*. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Suddenly realized, oh, God, <laughs> perhaps he's just talking about generally, <laughs> um, or, or, or somebody else. So then I had to phone him back and say, I'm so sorry. Actually, I texted him, I, I was a coward. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry, I, I think I might have sounded as if you'd offered me time. And... Anyway, he basically said, yes, I did, actually. But, um, <clears throat> and I knew it vaguely, as we all do, you know. It's one of those vague ones, and it's certainly not one that I ever expected to play. So... Uh, not that I particularly spent any of them, but uh, you know, what you mean, it really is a very obscure one. So it wasn't one that I knew very well. Um, I'd read it a couple of times, and that's it mm-hmm. really. And then um, uh, it sort of was on the back burner for about a year. And then Nick started working on it about uh, seriously with me and
0: some other people about a year ago. Mm. Yeah. So what how have you discovered about it? What strikes you about the, the play? I mean, he's a very well, solitary
1: figure, isn't he? It's, 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 it has been the most fascinating experience because, of course, you basically have to rewrite it. And the sort of privilege of sitting in a rehearsal room saying, I'm rewriting a Shakespeare play is, <laughs> is amazing. And it has to be done because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. Um, so what, you, what we did is we, um, uh, with a couple of other people, we read it, uh, Nick, um, and Ben Powers, who's our sort of dramaturg here. And we read the actual script as it's been handed down to us from the folio, and then discussed what Ben would then go away and do. And Ben went away and did a version, and then, came, and then we read it again. And, and gradually, sort of ideas started bubbling up. The main, the main problem if, for me was the emotion. I said, there's, there's, there's no point in doing it unless there is some sort of emotional uh, impact. Um, and I'm not really particularly fussed about going to a play where you have to like everybody. You know, I'm, not, not, I'm not saying that. It's just that I think if you have such a major character, and proportionally he has more to say, I believe, than any other major character. Um, so if you're going to have to listen to him bat on for that long, mm-hmm. then I think there has to be some sort of emotional uh, impact. Um, and I, I, said that, I said to Nick, that seems to me to be... My principal job. Um, uh, consequently, you should, I started beginning to locate what I thought what I thought the man's problem was. Um, interesting. Nick at one point said, "I do I do think there's no point doing shapes of play if, if the central character could sort it all out by a good session of psychotherapy, which I thought was interesting." <laughs> <clears throat> but actually, Timon could do with a bit of psychotherapy. <laughs> um, uh, and, Basically, I mean, in a nutshell, I don't know how many of you've seen it, but I, uh, in a nutshell, he's a man who doesn't understand how to manipulate—not manipulate, but how to experience and respond to love, basically. And I suddenly thought that was that was the way in—that this this man. So, uh, in the first half, when he's wealthy and when he's in in command of his environment, as he thinks. Uh, uh, he doesn't like to be touched and things like that, but that and that can flip when he loses all his money into a man who really doesn't like being touched. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a it's a way of finding your way in through that. So it's a man who that's what I located a man who doesn't doesn't understand love, and then I think really depressingly realizes he's too far gone down that route to do anything about it, and would rather walk into the sea than she does. Which I think is very sad, and then I think that then I thought that that actually is, that has, uh, engenders an emotional response in me. So um,
0: that's my answer. Mm. I suppose he's one of those people who thinks that you can buy people's genuine love and affection through yeah. generous gestures.
1: Yeah, I mean the thing is, he, he, and he doesn't receive. You see, mm. he he just gives. Um, and so, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an unequal equation, isn't it, in terms of love? I mean, quite apart from the fact that they're all bastards you know, <laughs> that he gives money to, it, it, he actually can't, he can't understand the reciprocal nature of it. He doesn't know what that means. And um, I think that's what he learns. That's the other thing about great, great Shakespearean tragic heroes especially, is the, is the learning process, isn't it? What do they learn? And I think he does learn something. I think he learns, he learns about his own... His own uh, incredibly, I would say stunted, I was about to say, but incredibly uh, damaged um, emotional life. I mean, I, I can't tell you how fascinating all the, all the history, and this all leads into that, mm. the history of the actual writing of the play and where we think it sits in the canon and, and, and the facts, things that, that might very well have changed if the two writers had continued to write it. And for those who don't know, it was co-written with Middleton and it's, a, it's an unfinished play. And we don't know where they would have gone with it had they continued to write it. But things like, uh, Time, and is the only major Shakespearean character who has no dependence. No family, no friends, no, obviously no friends. Um, but you know what you mean, he's absolutely solitary and that's fascinating, isn't it? Because you think, well, either you, either you accept that, you know, and do something with it, or you say, well, actually, that's a mistake he would have made he would have given him three daughters, you know, and then it would have been, <laughs> <laughs> then it would have been a different play, um, <laughs> and, and indeed his Hold next down, okay, um, and, and his next play, in fact. <laughs> um, uh, so, and the, so those little things, like, or the fact that he's the only Shakespearean character of, of that type of stature, who doesn't die on stage, mm. you know, does that weird thing at the end of saying, "Bye, bye, I'll <laughs> see you later," you know, and and sort of drifts off, and and you know, you wonder whether Shakespeare would have said or Burbage, would have said, hang on a minute, I need a very big speech at the end of this. and, um, and uh, Or whether he would have left it, that would have been the point of it. So uh, it's fascinating trying to balance out what's useful to you, or what you think, actually, that's, that, that is a
0: bad sketch idea. You know? I mean, do you, would, you li- would you have liked to have had a nice deathbed sequence in the play? Do you feel well, the it's lack funny, of it? Well, it's funny you say it, because
1: uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about this, but, um, uh, to give away things, but there's a bit, uh, when he loses all his money he, and he ends up on the streets, in our version, uh, he discovers this enormous stash of gold. It's, uh, it's one of those moments in the play just go, well, we, uh, there's no reason for it. He just did, <laughs> discovers an enormous stash of gold. And in fact, as a parenthesis, I remember um, uh, saying to Nick that uh, uh, the senators come back at the end and they say, we'd like you to come back to Athens, we're so sorry, we treated you badly, and would you, by the way, bring your gold? Uh, no, which of course makes time and howl with fury. But he, but, uh, so I said, this gold can't be just a suitcase with 5,000 quid in it. It's got to be, it's got to be able to pay off the national debt, you know. So it's got to be a vault of gold. And in fact, underneath the stage, we have, we imagine uh, un, unimaginable billions, trillions uh, <laughs> underneath the ground. I'm coming where I was going with this. Um, uh, uh, oh, that's the... right. So he lifts off the, the, manhole cover and he discovers this gold. Uh, at the end of it uh, there's a, a line sun hide thy beams which uh, in rehearsal I realised that Nick was going to set it all at, in the dark um, so there wasn't a sun to hide <laughs> the beams and then I said oh, ah I know it could be the gold, it could be a metaphorical so I go sun hide thy beams and, the, and this sort of magic gold disappears we I mean, were in the tech uh, so, last stages of rehearsal, and uh, I said, Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if. Because he walks into the sea, wouldn't it be wonderful if magically it transformed into the play of light on the sea coming up from this hole, and then I can descend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Got very short shrift.
0: Oh, shame. So, shame.
1: So, I think. I think, I think Nick seriously felt that the whole point of it was is that he just disappears. But mm-hmm. I did have this idea of sort of, we had a very early meeting with uh, Tim Hatley who designed it and it's, I, I haven't ever been actually in so early on a design meeting and it was rather wonderful because you know, images pop into your head and I do, do remember saying, would it be possible to flood the stage? You know. <laughs> and there was a designer who did, um, you probably remember his name. Um, but he did a tempest in the, Al- uh, in the Armada and yes. he did uh, Hecuba, some in the audience probably remember, yeah, did know. Hecuba at the Donmar warehouse with Claire Higgins. And do mm. you remember, Eddie Redmayne came up through the water yes. for his first yes. entrance and Ariel in the tempest dived into the water and didn't come back up, magic.
0: It wasn't S. Devlin, was it? No, that doesn't no. sound familiar. Brown? Yes, Paul. Paul Brown. Brian. Well, Brian, it's always built with Jonathan Kent. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that
1: was, I, had, I just said Wouldn't it would be wonderful if you could actually see him walk into the sea and not, not come back up.
0: But no, they didn't have a lot. <laughs> 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 too, too expensive. <laughs> can you tell which bits are Shakespeare's and which bits are Middle? Well, general?
1: I, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've, flatter our cast mm. and myself that we can. Um, I. I'm probably completely inaccurate. I mean, I know there's certain sort of little odd phrases and grammatical constructions and syntactical constructions that are unquestionably not Shakespeare. I mean, uh, he greets people very often, welfare you, and I don't know any Shakespeare play in which somebody says "Wellfare you uh, as how do you do... I might be corrected by somebody here, but um, that doesn't sound to me, that sounds Middletonian to me. Um, and, You'll see it for those who haven't seen it, and those who have will know that the first half is very simply written, and then you get to the second half, and suddenly it becomes whoppingly tortuous in terms of writing. Um, and I suspect, I suspect that's where Shakespeare was hitting, mm-hmm. hitting in. I think I, I, uh, I, I might be completely wrong. I think basically. I think basically, I might say that the first half is basically Middletonian, so I know that anyway, and the second half is Shakespeare, but there is a sort of, uh, there is a sort of narrative drive to the first half, which is, which is very uncluttered and un- there 's no fat on it
0: mm-hmm. and and then these huge great arcs of verse that come in What do you think because several of the characters have been feminized? Mm. Um, Presumably or made women, rather made than women. feminized. As, you know. <laughs> made female. Um, presumably because, it was, you know, quite rightly, the ladies were complaining about all these shows. Yeah, I mean, I think it was absolutely blatant. I think curse. it was... Uh, what difference do you think? Has it made any significant difference for this time of Athens as opposed to other productions that haven't taken Well, them? I don't know.
1: I mean, I, mean, I read... I, I, I read very little about um, Shakespeare plays that I do because um, I, I'm... Enough of an anorak to want to know when it was first printed and all those boring things, but I don't really read sort of analysis mm-hmm. of of uh, the text. And I don't read histories, which we, which is so wonderful now in Shakespeare editions. You get history of performance, which is fantastic, but I don't tend to read those cause for obvious reasons. But I did I did know that there was sort of rather homoerotic, um, uh, homo sort of versions of it, which makes perfect sense. Um, I think, I mean, you know, given the fact that, that I think Nick just wanted, well, first of all, Nick wanted to set it now mm. in London. And so therefore the presence of women, uh, hopefully we, we have more women in more positions of power than, than a, a, a homosocial world of Athens. But, um, so I mean, given, given that fact, I think uh, obviously it doesn't have that particular homoerotic thing, Uh, and in a a way, uh, Timon I think is supremely asexual. I think he he doesn't seem well, except for of course his loathing of sex later. Mm. But the first Timon we meet, I think, is resolutely asexual. I think, and that's again building up on the fact that he's so solitary, you know, that, that, that. Um, the, the, I mean when you've got somebody like Deborah Finley playing Flavia, you know, what a gift, I mean Deborah just has that amazing ability to open her heart on stage and to make it pellucidly clear what she's feeling and so therefore it has an absolute direct emotional weight. Um, which I think I found very useful as playing a man who doesn't have that openness of heart. Mm. Um, the only I can remember there was only one slight problem, which is that we didn't want to give the impression that they were, that in fact, Timon at one point says, I love you. I love thee. Mm. And we were very keen that there wouldn't, shouldn't be any sort of sense in which Timon loved Flavia. Um, uh, but I, I think that was the only little Area that we well, I think
0: what it does suggest is in a way that she sort of mothers him yes. in a way that Tymon is quite unworldly as well, well and she uh, kind of looks out for him yes the because um, the other thing you
1: as you know we all do is is to sort of create backstories and uh, uh, in my head this solitary uh, creature uh, had inherited his wealth. that was I was very keen on that so didn't understand quite what it meant, uh, and had parents who died when he was young, 10. Um, so he was a little boy who was brought up with incredibly loyal and loving servants. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, no way around it. But Flavia is one of that, he, he sees her as one of those people who has always mothered him, always looked after him, and, 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 has, and has abdicated all responsibility over, over to her. And I think that, I, I think exactly that, that Deborah gives that, that sense of feeling. Because he is very much loved by his, mm. his team, isn't mm. he? Um, I was thinking of people like, uh, you know, you read about the young Vanderbilt girl who, I can't remember, she inherited an enormous amount of money, didn't she, and ended up Christina you know, when I, when I was a child, I remember reading about her, you know, incalculably wealthy young little girl. Uh, so
0: that was the time that I... And do you feel that the transposition from Athens to contemporary uh, to a contemporary setting works very seamlessly. There are no kind of awkward moments. No, I, uh,
1: funnily
0: enough, no. Actually, um,
1: again, we just dis- we discussed this, and uh, uh, you know, Nick has a penchant for putting Shakespeare in modern dress, which is um, great. So I knew that, although he didn't have much to do about nothing, which was the last Shakespeare I did with him. Um, beautiful. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I knew he was probably going to uh, veer towards um, a modern dress production. And, you know, there was an obvious temptation, you know, in the title uh, about where to set it. (laughs) Um, uh, And actually, in the end, nothing to do with me, but I I, I remember thinking that it's it's somehow rude. It would be rude, but um, <laughs> you know it's not for us to say what it's like to live in Athens. And it's pretty; it might turn out to be hellish. It's pretty hellish at the moment. Um, so, and given that Middleton wrote *Half Fit* and Middleton wrote wrote with London in mind, you can tell there's lots of references to yeah. the city of London in the play, uh, city feasts, and uh, which of course could work very well in ancient Athens. But I, it seems that Middleton was talking about the city of London. It, uh, Nick just said, look, it's screaming at us. It has to be now, oh, it yeah. has to be in London now. Um, and, you know, Nick being the extraordinary producer as well as director he years, this is sort of two years ago, I don't know whether he anticipated the slew of headlines just before we opened, <laughs> which was <is> like, <laughs> I mean, it was like the god of theater saying, go for it. I mean, it was yeah. every day there was, I cut out a, a cartoon, in fact, I think it's in the program, uh, from The Guardian, I think it was, or The Times. Or something. Uh, and uh, it had um, a bank robber holding up a bank saying, it's not often that I enjoy the moral high ground. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a fantastic,
0: uh, a fantastically appropriate cartoon. I think it might be in the program. I mean, once time on, has gone to the opposite extreme and has taken up misanthropy, I mean, for you, Is the second half, is it a challenge to color and nuance? Because a lot of his, what he's saying, understandably, is full of bile, is a rant, is a kind of Well, there are are various things about the second half.
1: I mean, I've never seen this written down, but it seems to me that further proof that it's a a sketch is the fact that he keeps the character on for 50 minutes, nonstop. And again, it's one of those questions about would he have changed that if he'd done a complete version of the play, a finished version of the play. Um, and he very well might have done it. You know, I can again imagine, imagine Burbage saying, you've got to bring someone else on or give me a rest. Or, um, because actually, it's, it's, it's pretty fearsome, that, that 50 minutes. Um, I, I've never known anything like it in any of the Shakespeare parts. Richard III is about the nearest. Uh, but even Richard has a tiny little gap. Uh, but as you well know, you know he, he gives his his major characters gaps just to recover themselves a little bit um, so I'm, I'm i think that's further proof that it's a sketch this 50 minutes of and yes the big question is how to how to vary it um, and again it, that's an emotional question isn't it that's it's a, it's a question about his own pain and his own sense of betrayal as much about as much as about an outward going anger the other, thing, the other thing I kept on thinking, he's not right. You know, I, I, I don't think he's right. And I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. I don't, the, world, the world is a bloody awful place in lots of ways, but it's not what Timon says it is. And um, it's interesting that three, he has five little scenes within this big 50 minute scene. Three of whom are people who offer him help or money, or sympathy, three of them out of the five. Then there's some thieves who have beat him up which is horrible and, and there's the ghastly artists um, who come for more money. Uh, so three of them, all of whom Tymon rejects. And so it seems to me that it's not, it's, it's, he's not right. <laughs> And I think that's quite important um, that you mustn't think, you know, he's, he's, excuse my language, he's fucked up, you know. He, he, he's a mess and, and uh, it would be an awful temptation to, 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 to bat away at those great speeches as if that's the true
0: answer. I don't think it is the true, the true answer. And I don't think Shakespeare did either, really. Anyway, hey, let's talk about another great character, Falstaff, perhaps one we know better. I mean, I don't know if you have a list, uh, Simon, of parts you want to play, but if you do have, was Falstaff on it?
1: Well, I don't have a list, but yes, he was. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't have a list, and I've never had a list, but let's face it, I mean, you know, look at me. I mean, (laughs) it had to be done sometime. (laughs) And I'd still like to do it on stage. I mean, the, the only downside of what was an incredibly uh, fulfilling job was having to not, not say a few more of his words, but frankly, I mean, I, I, there was only one bit. I said to Richard Day, who was the director, there's only one bit I really missed, uh, which is when Falstaff says, you know, I used to be slim and I could fit through the mm-hmm. uh, Alderman's Alderman's thumb ring, uh, which I loved. <laughs> uh, but that, that was the only bit I really genuinely missed. Um, he, uh, yes, extraordinary character. I mean, I, I, uh, I have first to say, just to say, Richard Ayer, uh, I love him. That might go beyond these walls. You know, but, <laughs> and I'd never worked with him. He'd been my boss here when I first joined, and, and he was, you know, I was far too low down the pay grade to, <laughs> to really know him, but, but he was extraordinary, just extraordinary, and a cast. Mm-hmm. Again, before we started talking today, Alan, I was saying, I'd never met Julie Walters before, but she was doing a, a, a session like this a few weeks ago. And The first time she met me, within half an hour, we were rolling around on the mud, in the mud, beating each other up. Um, heaven. That's <laughs> absolutely heaven. It's one of those funny things about being an actor. Hi, I've never met you. How lovely to meet you. Bam, 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 bam. Or having sex, or whatever you do, doing uh, on a film set. Um, so, uh, so an amazing cast uh, jeremy being astonishing i thought henry fourth um, but the thing about falstaff um, that came it built up and up and up uh, was and i've i used the phrase an unexamined life I, I about him that he you know we know henry fourth part 2 is has this strange Elegiac, lyrical quality, and is and is centred on uh, partly on two men who are in their last days, Henry and Falstaff, and it's very evident there. But it's evident right from the beginning that, that I hadn't, I was, I was never quite aware until I did it that this man, this man's at the end of his life, and that subliminally, or perhaps not even subliminally, but um, that he's sort of aware that, that, that we're seeing. We're seeing the end of a relationship with Hal. We're seeing the end of a lifetime of, of fun and, um, you know, spending time in the pub, which I understand very well indeed, because I love my pubs. But um, it, it's the end of that. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not at the height of its of its enjoyment. Uh, and I remember somebody saying to me, "I've never really believed." you know, why Howell would hang out with Falstaff. I do believe that, I and mean, I do, I've known relationships like that, and I, I um, uh, and in fact, have been, as it were, on the Howell side, you know, I mean, uh, uh, the great Robert Stevens was one of the, was Falstaffian character that you spent a lot of time because he was such fun. Uh, so I do understand that, but uh, the point about it, as I said to this chap, is that it seems to me that, that, that the, the relationship is already decaying. And then then you get this man who suddenly faces the fact that he's done nothing, nothing. That's awful. That's awful. Because the other thing that occurred to me about Forstoff is you know that as as representative of you know how he's become sort of representative of somehow English vitality and and it was partly true but, well for a start he hates the country, doesn't he? You know, the idea that he's representative of apple orchards and green hills and, and the green and pleasant land is, is rubbish. He, he likes pubs, you know, and the grottier the better, um, uh, and that's where he wants to spend his time. And I just thought, I just the idea of him being somehow uh, at his expansive best is, is wrong. He, he's he's a deflating balloon, and he suddenly he suddenly sees his life, and it's it's it it has meant meant to achieve nothing.
0: I mean, that's it's almost Shakespeare in sadistic mood. their final you know scene between him and uh, Hal or the King yeah. as he is, then is yeah. the dismissal, the icy dismissal of it, and full stuff almost deflates like mm. a, a balloon. Like but it. you think he possibly you know he's he's. Intuited that this is likely to happen. Do you think? Well, uh, oh, subliminally, somewhere, mm. somewhere, it's too
1: desperate. It's it's too it's too um, it it it, too, it has too much of the quality. If I if I don't think about what's over there, then it won't happen. Mm. It has that quality about his whole life has that quality about it. Uh, even down to the doctors looking at his urine, it's like, yeah, do they say? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it 's the deaf ear and, I, and I, I I think that runs i mean it 's quite interesting that i i mean I, 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 um a couple of people have said to me that it 's quite a dark false stuff and i and I was not aware of doing a dark false stuff but i perhaps it is i mean perhaps perhaps uh... but it 's a man who 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 does cannot face too much reality i mean he really can 't cope with that and i think also <coughs> you know how Hallett is worse, he's a prig and he's cruel and all the rest of it. But there's no way, there's no way he can keep Falstaff around him, no way!
0: Is that one of the, I suppose, uh, the few times that you've portrayed a major Shakespearean figure on film? And in other words, was the process different for you? I think it's the only time, I think. Yes. Between, you know, because a lot of the people tuning in, hopefully, had never seen full staff before, so no. um, hope for you know what what did you go through, given the demands on time and filming that you well, had.
1: Well, I mean, to... I, I was a bit self-conscious because uh, you know I'm still at the age of fifty-one, not particularly expert at filming, and I'm, I'm aware that that I I have a theatrical tick. <laughs> Uh, which, um, but, but equally also aware that there were, there were times when uh, you could hang back and that was very useful and, and great fun to play. Uh, uh, the only slight problem with that is that I tend to sentimentalise if I, if I fall back onto being lyrical, you know. Um, the very last shot of the whole, it's rather interesting, the whole... The very last shot of the Henry Four was, was uh, uh, of the whole thing, was a, a solo shot of me. And it was Falstaff going, uh, rare words, brave world, Is it brave or brave words, rare world. And I remember thinking, I, remember, and I felt it was very sad because it was ending, so I was doing this rather beautiful little line, lyrically, and mm. I thought, hang on a second. <laughs> We're in the middle of the film, aren't <laughs> we? Just because it's the last shot, just, I mean, and actually it's rather lovely, because then Richard uh, had to film a tiny shot of Falstaff dying for the Henry V film. So in fact, my very, very last shot was of Falstaff dying, and that was great. Just, it was just saying, bye-bye, and that never ever happens on films. That. Um, I, I don't know, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I find, I I, I I I've watched it, um, and I find it very difficult to watch myself, and mm. I think it's, it's over theatrical and whatever, and, and, and uh, but, you know, uh, it, it is a great joy to be able to do certain soliloquies and things
0: internally. Mm. It looked, I mean, to be, were you shooting in the middle of winter? Because it's ah. pretty bleak and sort of Scandinavian and killing well, yes, and Actually, I think the the battle is
1: meant to be in the summer, (laughs) 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 but but, uh, we weren't filming in the summer and and there was that big snowfall over over, the early part of this year and we were filming in Hemel Hempstead, around Hemel Hempstead. So yeah, it was genuine snow. Mm-hmm. Then of course you get into trouble because after a week the snow started to melt and we started to really get in. Continuity. Uh, yeah, continuity <laughs> problems. And the mud, the mud was genuine. Mm-hmm. The mud, I cannot tell you what the mud was like. Um, And I was wading around in this... I mean, God, I was lucky. I wasn't fighting, but I was Mm -hmm. wading around. Literally, that mud that you actually can't lift your foot out because of the the vacuum, Mm -hmm. you know, just awful. Actually, that's when I did my back in, because um, Mm -hmm. a huge fat suit, almost. uh, um, Amazing makeup, too, actually. I thought I'd have to say that. Amazing makeup. Anyway, we did uh, about uh, a week, and Tom and Jeremy and... um, various other, um, you know, going around on their fantastic horses, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, Tom actually learned to ride very well, but Jeremy's a, a proper horse rider, so he'd gallop off into the hill, <laughs> in between shots, he'd gallop off, <laughs> look magnificent, and, uh, and then all these sort of, you know, 200 stuntmen slugging it out, so the testosterone level was getting quite high. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, uh, delightfully high, not, not an <laughs> uh But uh, Richard said, um, I, d- I don't know if this is ever done on the stage, because I can't imagine most false stars being able to do it night after night, but there's that scene when he carries Hotspur on his back. Mm. Um, and uh, Richard very sweetly said, uh, it was Joe Armstrong, he said, uh, will you be able to do that? I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Easy, easy, <laughs> thinking I'm bugged if I'm gonna have all these people, you know, doing all well. this, <laughs> and I'm gonna say, no, I can't, I can't, I can't <laughs> carry Joe on. Um, so I had Joe on my back and tipped him off, and my God, <laughs> <laughs> my 51-year-old back, oh dear, 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 that's why I had to cancel two shows of collaborators and playing Stalin. And I literally, I was in my, in my bedroom with my T-shirt on and I couldn't get my pants on. Because my back was just spasming like that, so that serves me right for showing off.
0: I see from my watch it's much too late. We should should have been uh, quitted the space hours ago. So sadly, I'll have to bring the curtain down. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Simon Russell Beale.